0: Hello and welcome to Sound and Image Lab. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. It's a show about how artists use technology to help them tell their stories. And I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today, we're speaking with the sound team and the picture editor who worked on David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. This is a pretty extraordinary new documentary that's streaming right now on Netflix. Uh, this was a really fun conversation because these folks are all long-time collaborators uh, who have worked on uh, Sir David Attenborough's projects for some of them as long as 20 years. Uh, today on the show we have Martin Elsbury, the picture editor, Graham Wilde, who is the dubbing mixer, that's what they call them in England, um, and Tim Owens, who is the supervising sound editor of the show and a previous Emmy winner himself. This particular film has five Emmy nominations this year, including Outstanding Cinematography, Picture Editing, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, and Music Composition. So uh, this is a really powerful film. If you haven't had a chance to see it already, I, I really encourage you to do so. It's a, it's a very personal uh, story following Sir David Attenborough uh, on his 70-year career. Uh, exploring the natural world and uh, and his thoughts on the changes that have happened during his lifetime. And it has a very powerful call to action for all of us to do our part to help restore biodiversity in our planet and to combat climate change. It's um, it's a pretty extraordinary movie, but uh, it's not all doom and gloom. It's It ends on quite a hopeful note, uh, and so I really encourage you to see it and to give it some some thought. Let's hear what these collaborators have to say about working on this film and their long history working on projects with Sir David Attenborough. All right, Tim, Martin, Graham, thank you so much for joining us on the, the Dolby Institute podcast. It's a real pleasure to talk with you about this film, David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. One of the things that we talk about uh, quite often on this show is, is decisions about how to get started and and how to... The structure of things in the first few minutes, the first 10 minutes, it's really kind of a magical opportunity. They, you know, the audience is always coming to you with great intentions. They, they want to be taken on a journey. They, uh, you know, they, they want to be entertained and they want to be, have their thoughts provoked. And so you, you make a very powerful decision to start this particular story at Chernobyl.
1: In the 30 years since the evacuation of Chernobyl, the wild has reclaimed the space. Today, the forest has taken over the city. It's a sanctuary for wild animals that are very rare elsewhere. And powerful evidence that however grave our mistakes, nature will ultimately overcome them. The living world will endure. We humans cannot presume the same. We've come this far because we are the smartest creatures that have ever lived. But to continue, we require more than intelligence. We require wisdom.
0: I'd love to hear you talk about kind of how that sequence came together. Was that always meant to be uh, the way that the film opened? Martin, maybe you can
2: talk us uh, through that a bit. Um, Yeah. As far as I know, it was always meant to be the way the film opened. Um, This was an interesting film because unlike a normal natural history film that I work on, which could really, it could start anywhere and it could go anywhere and it could finish anywhere. um, This was a... um, to a, to a large extent, it was it was pre-scripted, pre-planned and directed along those lines. Now, that doesn't mean to say we didn't change things. And we did. Um, we experimented quite a lot. But I think the Chernobyl um, opening was always reckoned to be the way the film should start. Um, and I think it was probably the most effective in terms of atmosphere and what have you that
0: yeah, it, it sets such a, an amazingly austere tone um, and almost kind of a, a, a bleakness uh, for what's to come. And then, of course, the genius of that move is that you're able to turn Chernobyl on its head and then it becomes kind of a, almost a symbol of hope at the at the end of the movie. And we'll come back to that. But Tim and Graham, can you talk a little bit about the acoustic treatment of the Chernobyl sequence at the beginning? Um uh, I, I presume that you're there's a lot going there's a lot more going on in the track than just the production recordings that were recorded with Sir David when he was kind of wandering around the ruins there
3: well the, the, unusually for me um there was some sync sound to this film um so so that was a, that, I, you know obviously i was delighted when that i realized obviously if Sir David was going to be um doing pieces to camera and then there would be a, a sound recordist. Um, there were there were some there were you know some of the audio was a bit compromised and that was to be expected it's not always easy to to um, to land it but overall you, you use the word bleak that's that was it really that was the brief and um, just to start bleak and let the music which which um, you know Graham Graham's got the handle on that and and just to get that music in but to start from a point of almost um i mean he does look particularly sort of um thoughtful there doesn't he you're amazed really so when was chernobyl was it 84
0: 86 i believe it was 86
2: yeah, six, i
3: think okay so you know a lot a lot's happened but in actual fact it was colossal i remember it well actually i mean i should have remembered 86 my, my eldest child was two and um, we were living in bristol and we all felt pretty poorly for a couple of days actually i don't know if anybody else picked up on that in the uk but a cloud came over even here and um in the lake district you know they weren't um lambing season didn't happen and things like that you know but anyway the chernobyl experience it just brought it back to me just how how and I, i really wanted to just see if i could get that um we did start using some tones and different things but in the end really you just just wanted to make it empty and bleak and 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 as I say, um, Stephen Price's music just picks it up. And then of course, even though he's doing pieces to camera, we are cutting away to um, archive of that at the time. And that generates a, a sense of, you know. Um, and also I think concurrently was, was Chernobyl. we were all watching Chernobyl here, the HBO show. I don't know if you've seen that. And of course, you know, that coincided. But you're absolutely right, the, 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 the cleverness of it was because um, in the absence of people, you know, nature, nature actually comes back and colonises, and that's how the end of the film after, uplifts us. Um, but, but he is also drawing it, he's obviously drawing an attention to the fact that it was a man-made error, and um, an effectively.
4: It was, it was quite an interesting journey for us, actually, wasn't it, Tim, in a way, because when we first saw the film, we kind of talked about how we were going to approach it, And, you know, there's lots of, as Tim said, there's lots of opportunities for kind of putting in moody sound effects and kind of dramatising edits and that kind of stuff. But like a lot of those things, you know, less is more. And actually we, you know, Tim had put in, you know, especially on the very opening bits, he'd put in some quite you know, really nice moody sounds of dis- lots of distant things happening around the buildings and the wind blowing, the signs and all that. And every, almost every time we went through it, we kind of took a little bit more out and a little bit more out. And Tim was probably there going, why do I bother? You know, what's the point? But, you know, we ended up at that stage where actually it was, you know, it was almost as quiet as we could make it. And then we you know, I think it's fair to say they had a few problems on set, on location, with the, with, you know, with just the wind that was blowing through the buildings and all that, and keeping the noise down. So we, you know, we were sort of balancing kind of how quiet we could actually make it, and yet still make it sound kind of natural. So that usual sort of noise threshold thing going on, but it's it definitely was through the whole film was a, was really about having as little as we thought we could get away with, rather than putting in as much as we thought we needed. I mean, it's such a powerful story, and there's a man. On screen, you know, as you say, telling you such important facts from the from the depths of his soul that the last thing you want is to put noises over it. They're going to in any way distract you from that. And the same with the score; it's all there around the outside, just kind of gently shaping what you're listening to and what you're what you're watching.
3: I was just going to say one of the things that uh, you know, you ask what it's like. I mean, I, you, you just say, "Hey, what, what was what was your experience like?" To the director and various people, and every now and again, he'd say they'd have to stop recording because a big pane of glass would just drop out of a building Um, you know the panes were, were going and the glasses so it meant that every everywhere anybody walked they were walking on broken glass so um i, I was thinking oh my god do we foley this all on broken glass now or do we just try and get rid of the broken glass so that was that was eventually I, as graham says it was all about clarity and just making yeah making and, and lots did go in and lots did come out. It was a process, definitely, of, of, of um, reduction.
2: Yeah, I think the simplicity is really effective. It's, um, I mean, that the score for me, I mean, I listened to it earlier on this afternoon because I thought I should sort of watch the film again, really, <laughs> before answering questions. But it, it's, it's the sort of simplicity, the plaintiveness, um, the sparseness of that music as much as anything else. No disrespect to what you guys do, but that's sort of what, what holds it together.
4: Yeah. And it, and it is, you know, we, we, during the, during the mix, we did, we did probably three or four reviews in the, um, in the, in the Atmos theatre at Windy Buffalo. And then we took it down to a local cinema that we, we use quite often for these kind of things. And they're good cinemas because they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, fairly normal, I don't know, three, 400 person cinemas, they sound, they sound good, but they, they're not over shiny and over clever. And, you know, they're not, they're not the best, but they they are very representative of what most people are likely to hear when they sit in the cinema. And we actually took it down the first time. And, and personally, I was like, Oh, no, that's wrong. That's really wrong. You know, we haven't done it right. And actually, we kind of almost held back too much. And in trying not to overpower the story, it was a bit flat and a bit sort of, you know, as, as a mix as the mix went. I was like, no no, 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 no. We need to, we need to make this, and we need to have those moments where the music does get very loud and kind of in, engulfs you, and then puts you back down again, and you can kind of then calm down and carry on and listen. So it was very much about light and shade at that point.
0: It's about establishing contrast, isn't it? That's right.
4: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, I think uh, you know you were alluding to this. I think all three of you in a way, but I'm curious. You know, this is a much more personal film um, than than the usual um, Sir David Attenborough uh, nature uh, explorations. and it's really about his journey, uh, and he's at the he's centered in this story. And so, I, I'm I imagine that that must have dictated some different stylistic decisions and some different approaches because it's a much more emotional um, story than, than yeah. typically comes through in these films.
4: Yeah, I mean, Tim and I had a chat um, before we started. In fact, before I started premixing, so kind of during Tim's track lay time, and we were kind of going, "Do we want to hear the sounds of the archive stuff?" Where the some of the archive was obviously you know David was speaking in it it was footage from old films and Martin had given us the sound for that so that was that was fine it was integral to the story but there's other bits of film where we're like is this going to distract you by hearing those little details that aren't necessary? So we kind of almost decided. I mean, Tim had put them in because that's always the safest bet. Just put it in anyway, and then if it's not needed later, it, it won't be used. But so with the first mix we'd done, we hadn't used those sounds because we thought would again keep it simple, keep it you know keep it as keep it as as open as we can. And then it's like, no, no, you need to be connected with those events. You need to hear the children playing the football. You need to hear the crowd at Chernobyl who were living there at the time. And when life was busy, it was busy. And there were cars and motorcycles and all that kind of thing. So, so again, we, it, was, it was kind of a learning experience in that respect, because normally we'd put that stuff in. You know, when, when we get presented with normal natural history sequences, a lot of the time they can't shoot any sync sound at all. For, for various reasons. So, you know, they'll send Tim four and a half seconds of recording of the bird tweeting and say, this is it, can you use that for the whole sequence and make that work for us, please? So Tim has, a, you know, the usual tricky job of actually extracting little bits of noise and, and fitting them to the sequence. So that's the normal, you know, how we go through this, the, 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 the scenes. But in this case, it was, we really had to think and kind of, you know, come up with a new idea.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because now I want to. Now I want to dig into this. So, so uh, on the typical, uh, so, you know, Sir David Attenborough film, when we're exploring nature, um, I- I'm presuming Graham, as you said, there, you're not getting, you know, these unbelievably gorgeous shots of animals and nature, but you're not getting any tracks coming in. Is all of that captured typically MOS, or or is any sound coming in? Maybe some wild tracks, or what? How does that normally come to you, Tim?
3: Um- Wild tracks. The um, lenses are just way more. Um, c- uh, camera lenses are just way m- can get much closer than any anybody can with it, with a microphone. Uh, so we we, re- we rely on um, well recorded field wild tracks. Which, as Graham said, it's not always possible. It just simply is. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's so because of that. Um, I've started compiling a library a long time ago. And sorry, people out there, but some of the animals you hear have been dead 20 years. Um, you know, they could be related, but they certainly
4: <laughs>
3: Some of them are last century, to be honest. Um, so that's, that's one thing I had to get off my chest. But the other thing is, you know, what with, um, if for the real intimacy, we've got very good Foley department and again that's another spoiler um but the the you know what one does at the beginning of anything is you sit down and you get a species list and you work out what time of year and what's the behavior and every now and again you do get lucky and there's been somebody has um just for reference um uh, shot something and you can get a clearer idea of often animal displays are very difficult to to know i mean you know i don't get out into the field So I need, I need as much information as I can get. And, you know, for years I've probably, we probably may have been doing um, some animals a disservice by putting the calls not quite in sync. Um, But there's another thing that uh, Martin probably doesn't do as much as the younger cohort, but they like to play everything off speed. Now, if you've got an animal, animal giving it all vocally, off speed, then you've got to do, you've got to manipulate the sound. Uh, Just to make it look. Yeah. So that's a challenge that Graham and I probably have four or five times a film. Um, And um, we've got the toys are getting better. I mean, we're we're getting better at doing it, but you have to stretch it and, and hope it works.
0: I want to follow up and ask a question about about that, but i'm I'm curious before we before we get into that, uh, Martin and Tim specifically, tell me a little bit about um how are you guys collaborating through the picture cutting process? because obviously, Martin, that means that you're you're editing a lot of wildlife and nature footage together that doesn't have any track. So is Tim, is Tim, uh, or some of the editors are they getting started early, feeding you stuff, or are you kind of do you have a do you have a, a picture assistant who's cutting in tracks, or how do you how do you how do you
2: work together? Well, to be honest with you, I mean this is an interesting historical point um, because traditionally, when I started editing, I was editing on film, sixteen millimeter film, and in those days, you only had two tracks available to you anyway. And one of them was likely to be temp music. Um, the other would be sort of sync, sync sound, sync, sync dialogue. Um, and I'm, I am trained in working with pictures with no sound on at all. And it wasn't until we reached what we call picture lock, um, that then the assistant editor might've been, um, Graham in those days would come along and lay the soundtracks to it. And then it would go off to the mixing studio to be mixed. Um, so, and that's because I'm, I'm, I'm an old bloke now and I, you know, I, I haven't changed my ways. I tend not to work with much, um, atmospheric or effect sound in the edits at all. Now, younger editors, um, Tim pointed this out, younger editors will do that a lot more these days because you can. Um, but I'm still used to sort of working with pictures mute. But in this particular instance, we had, David's script lines and we had temporary music coming in and out. I mean, there there were times I worked with a bit of sound, but so there there wasn't a huge amount of um, uh, sort of discussion going on between me or Tim or Graham, to be honest with you. I mean, I think we, you know, we did get in touch now and again and kept each other in the picture. But
3: But Martin, you you would know, wouldn't you, that you would know... because of how long we've been doing this, but exa- you'd know what the sound guys were going to do with that. As in, yeah, you know, exactly. And so you would just yeah. be, we, we kind of we kind of rely on each other and you would know that that, that was going to be there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting point because it is useful to have sound on, on some of the film for viewings because people who are not used to watching mute films get completely thrown by seeing it without any sound. Um, but, other than that yeah it's um i I trust I trust in the um, sound editors in the next stage of the process really, and like Tim says, we worked
4: it's quite a skill being able to read a cut though without the proper sound on it you know I think I think you know somebody like Martin who's used to it, it's great, but for for you know younger producers and and execs and people like that they you know they they'll watch a scene and actually they won't like the scene because it's got the wrong temp music on it not so much because the scene isn't cut right. And actually, if we'd done it Martin's way and there wasn't any music on it, actually, that would be better because you judge it for the scene that it is. But actually, you know, having that guide narration or temp music or temp, you know, temp sounds on it, sometimes it can go wrong and you end up uh, creating a rod for your own back. The thing I always hate is when I'm listening to a temp track that somebody like Martin's done and it's really good. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, the, the rough... The, the temp track is amazing. How are we going to make this any better? You know, it's got, it's got four or five weeks of post-production to go, and it's starting off, like, sounding great. What are we going to do? <laughs> so I always prefer to have big gaps.
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, you all bring up an interesting point, and, and because you have um, worked on these films uh, for so long, I'm really curious to know, has the, has the creative approach to the sound changed? Um, over obviously, obviously, the technology has changed. in Martin, as you said, you know, you originally started cutting on sixteen millimeter, and it was, it was a very obviously time-consuming and laborious process to, you know, stripe all those sound effects off to mag and and cut them in. And then, but at, at, from an aesthetic and creative standpoint, uh, ha, have what you are doing with the tracks changed over the course of the years?
4: One one thing I would say that I think has changed massively is Tim can now get in touch with the scientist who helped set up the shoot to ask that person who spends all that time with those animals, whether the sound that he's going to use is right. And I was in a mix last week and we phoned up a person in the very location where we were mixing this sequence about ostriches to ask if what we were doing was correct. So for me, that is, although there's a lot, obviously, you know, technical creative things which we'll come to in a minute, but of all the things that's changed in the last few years, people can actually get their phones and they can go, well, look, it's doing this now and it might not be very good quality we couldn't use the sound we couldn't use the pictures but we can see what's meant to be happening and we can kind of use that as a guide
0: tim you have anything you want to add to that how is uh, how is the, the 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 approach to cutting the sound for these pictures changed over the years
4: well well in many
3: respects it's been it's it's actually a more fun job i mean which is it's great i mean you know if you can, you can my age and still love going to work. It's not bad, is it? But your approach is slightly different. You're, we're all now um, aware of Dolby Atmos, and we're all aware that. I mean, when Graham and I and Kate were at a party in um, that was Burbank, wasn't it? Dolby and Burbank. Graham, do you remember? And they and they they were they were putting through the Emmy um, uh, finalists, and they were just. Just running them through the Derby Atmos um, theatre that they had there very quite a raped room—and you know, some of them were just talking heads, and it was plainly just—it was a bit odd. But we'd worked on something that had quite a dynamic mix, and we were going, "Oh, this is what this is what we thought Five One was going to be like," you know, which kind of was the new big thing in 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 the in the eighties, nineties. And so from then on, I always thought, this, this, "I'm glad I'm still going because this is going to be great fun." And um and, and obviously as it's proved to be, but we also now do we now know that um soundbars are much better, people have got fantastic tellies, they've got they've got you know, it's there if you want if you want to, we can do it. Graham's um been I mean his mixes are always really dynamic. Um we get away with what we can. Some producers are really very you know, they don't want that, quite rightly, because some of the, the um um you know very very straight natural history is good in itself you don't have to jazz everything up but the way things are done you know your planet earth and all of those the pictures demand a bit a bit of um a bit more in the sound so
4: yeah a lot of these films people watch them on their phones or their you know their ipads or their small tellies and yet we go to imax films and watch them for the launch you know and it's the same mix it's not a different you know it's 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 got to stand up in a lot of places and quite often people say, Oh yeah, I saw your film last week on the, in the cinema. And you think it wasn't a film, it's a television <laughs> program. So, you know, it's good that they, they stand up to all those different scrutinies.
3: Way more tracks is the other thing, but then, yeah. you know, that's what, that's what, but you know, that's actually probably a bane for Graham because you do need to choose if you are an editor, you can't just chuck everything at it. You've got to edit in what you, you know, what is useful and you've got to remember that discipline um I, i've been lucky i've worked not just in natural history i've got a varied diet but i do love um the documentary format and the um so this one delivered for us well for me in personally on all fronts i mean i love working with dialogue and i particularly like um and the way they had david staring down the, the lens like that and um it was all you know all that was quite interesting for us this film actually was being post we would go we went into post just before the pandemic <laughs> and we were just becoming aware of it we were just we're I was hearing about this place called Wuhan and you know and um it did occur to me that was the one thing that um we hadn't brought up in the film <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's how kind of well, novel it was you know
0: yeah. Since you brought it up, I am curious to know: Did uh, did COVID and the, the 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 lockdowns did that? How did that affect your post production process? You, you were just going into post when this happened?
4: No, no, we, we just we yeah. literally just finished.
0: Ah, okay, okay. So,
2: what well, yeah.
3: what it did affect was that um, the one thing Graham hadn't been told to do was to um, create a, a delivery spec of sound for the Royal Albert Hall. Which is—it's um, you know, like an echo chamber. And um, I was about to say,
0: it's not—it's not, it's not an optimal sounding room for for, for film, no. is it?
3: No, but it was all lined up. It was all lined up, and and Graham was going to have to do the do the sound check, and I was thinking, poor poor guy.
4: Yeah. I was anyway, like,
3: that mm. that was the casualty. That was the casualty. that. that How can
0: I get out
4: me. of this?
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well Graham you mentioned uh you mentioned uh, uh Dolby Atmos what uh how did you, how did you make use of the Dolby Atmos format in in this particular mix
4: So um it's I I've I've been mixing in Dolby Atmos for about 4 years now I suppose since the since the kind of workstation integrations that really really uh, been going really well with Pro Tools so um done quite a few series in it so um it wasn't anything particularly new for me mixing this in Dolby Atmos but because of the style of the program that we've already always already talked about, we didn't want too many things going off screen, distracting from effectively what is a very you know front and center kind of you know message that you've you've got to make the most of. So we kind of looked at it when we went through pre mixing. We looked at it and chose various stages, which actually are, are quite obvious where. Bit of story and then we illustrate the story with pictures and sequences that we can use sound and music for so then it was a matter of making a lot of those sequences and then bringing it all back down again and being able to um being able to just kind of focus on what's being said so i mean it was great because you know with with Dolby Atmos, you can move things out of the way rather than dipping them down and you can you can shove things to the side and up and down and it, it really you know it, it makes for a good experience in the cinema um and it also from my point of view it's great because it translates really well to other formats so i was in one of tim's studios a while ago with a, with a new producer and she's saying so what's all this dolby atmos thing i've been hearing about so i did her a little demonstration with the squash court and the little ball going up over her head and she's going wow that's amazing you can really hear it going over the top and i said the clever thing is this studio only got two speakers and I said, that's all about the down mixes and those algorithms that make you think it's going up there. And it's not. So she was like, oh, my God, that's so that's what you'll hear on the telly. And I was like, yeah, that is that is that's for me. What makes it that good is that the down mixes work really well. So. um So, yeah, she was she was. She was impressed with that so yes, yeah, so from that point of view, the Atmos was great because it just gave us a bit more scope to move things around and you know the big sequences where we've got fires and winds and things being destroyed and that kind of stuff obviously there's a lot of scope for for making a lot of noise, but also there's a you know in, in this film, as you've already said there's a there's a lot of quiet, and I think that's the important bit for me
0: there's a lot of quiet and but as you say there's also some wonderful opportunities you you obviously had some really good fun with the uh <clears throat> the monsoon you know the thunder and the monsoons you know sh- shots and and then the uh 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 you know the humpback whale sequence i i presume you you had some good fun with that as well
4: yeah 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 and it was and it's great cuz actually um, when we're doing a show, quite often in natural history programs, they are based around a species or an animal or a family or a, or a location. So you kind of get very stuck into the into the details of those things whereas a show like this you're just touching on little things so actually for the humpback whales you can make it a great sounding humpback whale sequence and for the other things you can kind of focus in on you can have the like the best sounds that these things make so for this film that that was that was great whereas if you're doing a 60 minute documentary about humpback whales a lot of it you've got to you know just be very careful and use the right things at the right time A moment ago, we made this recording with an underwater microphone here in the Pacific,
1: near Hawaii. Just listen to this. Recordings like these revealed that the songs of the humpbacks are long and complex. Backs, living in the same area, learn their songs from each other. And the songs have distinct themes and variations which evolve over time. Their mournful songs were the key to transforming people's opinions about them.
0: Martin, I, I have a question for you. you know, the, the, I love the structure of this film um, because it starts off, really the first part is sort of looking back at kind of the, the nature of the planet over the course of Sir David Attenborough's life. And then the second part, which is the really kind of dire, uh, scary part is you know, where things are going if we don't take any kind of action.
1: Science predicts that were I born today, I would be witness to the following. The Amazon rainforest, cut down until it can no longer produce enough moisture, degrades into a dry savanna, bringing catastrophic species loss and altering the global water cycle. At the same time, the Arctic becomes ice-free in the summer. Without the white ice cap, less of the sun's energy is reflected back out to space, and the speed of global warming increases. Throughout the north, frozen soils thaw releasing methane a greenhouse gas many times more potent than carbon dioxide accelerating the rate of climate change dramatically
0: but then i really appreciated that the third part is really kind of a you know this is not a foregone conclusion we can still you know it's 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 a tricky thing because you you know you you get the audience and you you alarm them and scare them, but then you don't leave them without hope. Was that always kind of the structure of the film or did you find that in post-production or how did uh, you, you had mentioned that it was script more scripted than some of the other projects.
2: Yes, it, it was, it was there from the start, um, to a large degree. Um, but we spent a long time trying to get the balance between what we referred to as the dark section where you just want to sort of end everything at the end of section two and the hopeful section, which we didn't want to make too hopeful because we didn't want to dilute the the gravity of the film. Um, so there was a, yeah, a, a lot of experimentation with the interplay between those two aspects of the film, certainly. And, um, and of course, we were also trying to weave in the, the historical stuff of David, which um, was, was a joy, really. I mean, it it sort of held the whole thing together by giving it a sort of deeper historical aspect, which uh, I I really enjoyed working with.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you you know you really uh, you navigate tone. You, I think uh, uh, Tim mentioned previously there there are these shots of David just kind of staring down the barrel of the lens and talking directly to camera, but you also have some really stunning moments where he just kind of stops. And he doesn't say anything and you just play it out on his face. And he's so, you can so you can tell he's so deeply emotional and so passionate. It really comes through yeah, very, yeah. very and, nicely.
2: Yeah. And that, that was a real privilege to work with. Actually, David had, well, two major styles. Um, when, when he was filmed doing this, one was his straight script reading style. I mean, it was all done, you know, straight down the lens. Um, but but at the top level you had is is sort of standard script reading style and then the next level down um and we didn't have as much of this as I would have liked but there was a, a more conversational tone um a bit more philosophical i suppose um and it wa it came about because between the the t- the main takes of David's script reading style um the director would would be talking casually to david about what he just said you know what could we change it at all and david would then go into a conversational mode and we found out very early on that that was really really effective and in fact we even planned to try and get more of it and there was a second shoot with david where they deliberately went for that more conversational tone, but it didn't quite work as well as the original one, which was, you know, straight off the cuff. And um, and out of that conversational tone, because the cameras were still running, um, David would often just stop and look down or look at a screen and look at his script. And that's where those um, moments that we used for really high emotional impact came from. So, yeah, it was, it was great working with those, those three aspects of it, really.
0: Yeah, remarkably effective. Well, as you say, one of the things that, uh, uh, that you got to play around with on this film is all the archival footage from Sir David's previous uh, projects. In
1: 1971, I set out to find an uncontacted tribe in New Guinea. These people were hunter-gatherers, as all humankind had been before farming. They lived in small numbers and didn't take too much. They ate meat rarely. The resources they used naturally renewed themselves.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the process of, I mean, you must have had a, a billion hours of footage to, to go through. How did you How did you make decisions about what uh, was going to end up in the final cut? And, uh, and then Tim and Graham, I'm curious to hear about kind of your approach to, did you have to recreate some of this? How much of what we're hearing was the original kind of edit and mixes of those tracks?
2: Well, in, in terms of the picture edit of those, those things, um, we really only needed very brief moments of them. So if it was David in an archive film, those were obviously the the key moments. If there were um, slightly wobbly black and white images of the animal he was looking at, like for instance in the orangutan sequence, we'd obviously include those as well. But we didn't need that much. So um, it wasn't really a case of um, being too worried about how I recut it um, because I was just taking little snippets at a time, which were um, appropriate to what what David was saying. No, I was just going
4: to say, from a sound, sound point of view, uh, this was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Tim and I were a bit like, oh, we don't want to put too many sounds on this, because it's not about this. This is just an illustration, as Martin said. It's just helping you understand this you know and, and reinforcing the story that David's telling so having lots going on was was just didn't seem right but I it, I think Tim found a really nice balance of kind of getting everything covered and everything there and when we just kind of filtered it and made it sound like you'd expect it to sound for that age of footage so even when we couldn't use the original sound which you know a, a, I would say basically all the pieces to camera where David was speaking was was the archive sound, and pretty much everything else was built up from scratch. So, um, and we just treated it to kind of give it that edge.
0: Did you have to build everything up from scratch just because from a fidelity standpoint, it didn't stand up, or what, what was the reasoning behind uh, having to reconstruct?
3: At that level, archive, if if, if if you really only get the final mix, so there'll be score on there, there'll be, there'll be you know, there may be narration that isn't relative to uh, it. So you have to just go with, well, we're going to have to rebuild this. Um, there were. You mean you mean was, the B- the
0: BBC hasn't been storing stems and premixes for everything back not. for the last 60, 60 years?
3: No, sadly, <laughs> and the it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um,
3: no, exactly. So yeah, you're, you're kind of you're kind of hamstring there. But the but the fact is, um, because they weren't looking for, you know, they wanted it of the style, and I remember quite. Well, how you did that, it would be five or six tracks, so you know um, it wasn 't going to be too much there was there was one thing that struck me, and it came back to me so quite a long time ago, uh, we were really stuck because um, we didn't have the sound of David being alarmed about a chimpanzee that wanted to get into his canoe and paddle him off and um,
0: I love that sequence yeah
3: yeah, so I remembered that that yelling was sort of me back in. You know, back back in the day, um, so I thought, well, I can do a lot better than that, you know. And um, so, but I think we did go what was originally that. So yes, um, I suppose. In, in so you have sort of way, done
0: you have done an imitation of Sir David that <laughs> made it say, into the film.
3: <laughs> I really came to to that to that, and it and it and it's well hidden. But yes, that that that, um, that yelling was me. Yeah, but but other than that, the um the, the the approach was as Graham said, let's get it covered, but let's just make it. It's almost like um, it, it, yeah, it's just it's more about the illustrativeness of it. It's not about the specificness of the sound, but in a in a way, when you see it in a and it washes over you, and you just think, oh, okay. I mean, it, it, was, it was. Martin did a great job. It was clever because you don't you didn't want to get distracted by it, but you wanted chronologically what you could see oh, it's color now, you know, <laughs> and he's still there and he's always striding up something, wasn't he? And he was all on the back of a horse. And, um, he
0: seems, he seems fearless. Is that actually, do you, do you construct that in post-production or is he actually that fearless when
2: he's out in the world?
4: Yes, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think David was a yeah, real I adventurer, think he probably he? <laughs> 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 There was,
2: there was one archive sequence in terms of the picture editing, where I was quite sensitive about the edits that, um, were in the original sequence. And I deliberately tried to keep as many of those edits as I could. And that was the um, when David goes off to Papua New Guinea and, and meets the tribe of hunter-gatherers. Because I found out while I was working on this film that that particular film had been edited by an editor that I worked for, in my in my very early days at the BBC. Uh, it was Paul Carter. Do you remember Paul Carter?
4: No, I don't. Graham, know. Tim? No, no, no before no. your no. time.
2: Um, and I suddenly found out that Paul had cut this film, and I thought, oh, I can't do him a disservice by recutting this too radically. <laughs> so we'll, we'll keep a few of his original edits in there. <laughs> well, well done.
0: I, I love how... It's really, it really feels like a, almost a sense of family um, that has come together around these films because you, <laughs> you all, you know, you all worked together for so long, and you and you know each other so well, and and there's such a, a long history. So th- that actually kind of leads me into my final question for you, which is: this obviously, Sir David is what, 93 now, as he says at the at the top of the film, and this film almost feels like a little bit of a of a of a swan song, a valedictory for him. Uh, it must have made it for a, a, a much more emotional experience for all three mm. of you, having had this long history with him and these projects. Yeah, very much. Can you talk about? Yeah. That? Please talk about that.
3: Well, Graham, can I, can I remind you of something, Graham?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Remember when um, he'd come to the end of the, the narration record, mm. and you you let some air, and you know, you just thought, "Oh, I've got to go," and no, no, it's, it's all over. And he had he had a tear in his eye, didn't he? Because
4: yeah, he, I mean. The way the way David likes to do his narration records is we, you know, he'll spend a lot of time going through the script before um, the program's completed and, you know, add a few changes. in them. on the day of the record, we'll set up, and he'll record two picture in a whole run through. So we'll do a complete run through. And even if there, there are any fluffs, which, to be honest, there aren't that many, but, you know, even if there are any fluffs, we'll just make a note and we'll go and pick those up later. So that first run through is like watching the film sometimes. And I have to say there were several points and I'm sitting there just recording it, pressing record and sort of watching it through. And there were several points during the record that I was really choked up as it's, you know, it's the first time you can kind of hear, even though it's not necessarily the final music, it wasn't the final premix, but it's David telling the story. And, and yeah, we went back and we did the pickups at the end, but um, yeah, it was lovely because afterwards, um, He came out into the room and just said to, uh, to, to Colin and to Johnny, just said, you know, this, this is, you know, thank you. You know, and he was obviously moved and touched by, by the film. And, you know, just basically said, thank you to them for making such a great film, which told his, you know, what he wanted to say so eloquently. And he was, he was obviously moved by it as, as we all were. And, you know we I said we did those viewings in the cinemas, and we took you know ninety people down to the cinema at a time and watched it and I think we had sort of eighty five people in tears twice during both reviews It was, it was quite an emotional well, no, process
3: no, johnny um the director very clever guy i mean he really you know he he the way he approached this was very very good and he um he started to get a bit concerned because everybody who watched it was went to pieces. <laughs> So uh, the original screenings were, were, you know, these are hardened, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was recently, anyway.
0: Cynical, um, cynical, English, cynical English folks, yeah. right? You right?
4: know, but in, in
3: industry people, you know. Yeah, they're I mean, all so, TV
4: professionals, so, you know, they're used to the process yeah. of making films.
3: Yeah. Uh, well, for us, um, when it was all over sort of thing, and we knew, that, we knew that it was a lock, I think a few of us went for a, for a very quiet drink. It wasn't like a huge celebratory drink. It was a sort of, yeah, you know, it was. We were, we were pleased, and but we just knew that that was something that he really wanted to get made, and it was made. And then, you know, I was just wondering how this would play. And if you look at what's going on now, you know, I mean, obviously you're in California right now, I think, aren't you, Glen?
0: Yes, that's right, Los Angeles. Yeah, um,
3: well, you've got a, you've got a fire that's bigger than London, apparently, going on. You know.
0: That's I mean, there's right, yeah. fires
3: in Greece, there's fires in, in Turkey, Sicily, Italy. I mean, we've, and he's, you know, and by the way, you said he was 93. He, he's 96. <laughs> I guess who's recording him <laughs> twice a week? Graham. <laughs> when you said this not a victory, he's doing more work now than, mm. than ever, isn't he, yeah, Graham?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's I mean, I, I was just looking, there's, I'm recording one, one week coming up shortly. I'm recording him four times in a week for four different shows so you know he's he's, all right well
0: maybe it maybe 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 it's not a maybe it's not a swan song after all there's much more there's much more of
2: sir david to come yeah i mean there there was that feeling at the time certainly
4: yeah he's he's yeah i mean people people were talking you know he's still got a lot to say and a lot to add and a lot to impart so i think as long as he's enjoying doing it he'll carry on
2: absolutely now people you know when we were when we were making this show people were. Sort of hinting that it was a, a swan song for David. Um, and what was really nice for me was that, um, about the same time I decided that I was getting a bit long in the tooth for this game. So I was going to sort of back away from it. Um, at least partly. Um, so I suddenly thought, you know, this is really nice swan song for David, swan song for me as well, because I, I first worked, I first worked on a David Attenborough big series in 1989, it was the trials of life. So, you know, we go back a long time together and, um, it was, it was just lovely that the whole thing had come around. Um, but more importantly than that was, um, it's what, what Graham has just said that this was a series that this, this was a a product that David knew he had to make really. It, It was an important film. Um, and I, I came to realize that more and more as I was working on it. This, this was, you know, this was powerful stuff. This was important stuff. So we had to get it right, really.
0: Yeah, well said, well said. Well, Graham, you know, something you said about uh, uh, being at the recording sessions made me, uh, made me think about like, you had a special challenge on this as well, which is like, you're much more so than any of the other films. You're, you're intercutting and butting up David Attenborough speaking to camera with, uh, with VO recording as well, but it all sits really nicely. It was a a very nice mix.
4: we had, um, it was interesting because we, we ended up, so because of the way it was filmed, Martin had a lot of dialogue that was from the studio re- uh, filming sessions that he could cut in as voiceover and use that as, as voiceover from the other bits. But then there were certain points where the quality wasn't great. And it so we ended up re-recording all of the Outer Vision narration and then kind of literally going through, sequel sort of part sequence by part sequence saying right all of this will take from that bit because that sounds the same and it's just you know the humans are very good at picking up on when voice quality changes even not technical people they'll just think that sounds funny he sounds like he's not interested he sounds like he's changed his tack of thought or something so you know we went through and very carefully just constructed each sequence from one of the one of the two options sequence by sequence so yes if you uh, if you thought it held together then uh, Phew, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I was I was close listening on headphones, so it it, it held yeah, up very wow. nicely. Congratulations. Good. Good, good. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk to us about this really remarkable film, uh, and congratulations on your well deserved Emmy nominations. Martin, Tim, Graham, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank You're thanks, very thanks. thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Many thanks to Martin, Tim, and Graham for joining us today for that great conversation. And thanks also to our friends at Netflix who helped us put this conversation together. Be sure to check out this wonderful and moving film on Netflix today. As always, you can find links to it in our show notes. And if you haven't already, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We have a ton of exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks that you won't want to miss, including our continuing coverage for the 2021 Emmy Awards. You will find links to our dedicated podcast feed in the show notes or by searching for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. It really helps us raise awareness of our show and helps us continue to grow. Until then, thanks again for joining us. This has been Sound and Image Lab brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines. Thank you for listening.